0: Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of Locum's and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Arthold podcast. You are tuned into our board review series, slash our OITE review series. And we are finally on some hand. I know a lot of the hand guys and gals out there, uh, you all have been waiting for this, and we're finally here. And uh, in the first episode, we talked a little bit about anatomy, but now we're going to talk a little bit about distal radius fractures so stay tuned hit the subscribe button and check out the podcast companion book if you want the notes that goes along with all of these talks and everything from all of orthopedics that we have covered so far so let's go ahead and get into today's episode you are now listening to nailed it the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors jay fitz and wendell cole Moving forward to some hand and wrist trauma, I guess we'll kind of just start on some distal radius stuff here. So I guess what are some common eponyms for distal radius fractures? Because, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that these fractures can displace. And sometimes a lot of people just use their eponyms instead of saying we have a distal radius fracture. And sometimes, you know, it's good for communication as well.
1: These do make it kind of easy communication between specialties, really. I mean, this, I would say that this is probably seen more with communication between like a primary care doc and an ER doc with us and they'll say like, hey, I got a Collies or a Barton or this or that, but regardless, so a Collies is an extra articular distal radius fracture that is dorsally displaced or volarly angulated. A Smith's fracture is a extra articular distal radius fracture that is volarly displaced or dorsally angulated. A barton, so there can be volar and dorsal bartons, but basically they are a shear type injury, similar to what you see in a kind of a lateral tibial plateau shear injury. They are intraarticular. The chauffeur fracture is intraarticular fracture that involves the radial styloid. A dipunch fracture is a axial-based fracture pattern that involves the lunate impacting into the lunate facet of the distal radius and is more of an impaction or axial loading type of injury. So those are the common eponyms. Obviously, probably in your fracture conferences or in talking with your hand and wrist attendings, it's more appropriate to say a comminuted intraarticular fracture of the distal radius with volar angulation, that gives them a little bit of a better idea than just like, oh, collie's fracture or whatever. So this is definitely something you should know. What are the r- normal radiographic parameters that you need to know when discussing distal radius fractures and fixation of those intraoperatively?
0: Yeah. So three things, classically, I'm getting asked this a bunch on uh, away rotations. But your volar tilt so you want your your the tilt of your distal radius if you look at it from a lateral and and you have a line going through the you know kind of on the axis of the radius and then you draw a line about the articular surface that's kind of that volar tilt so you want that to be within 11 degrees the radial inclination so if you take a line and you draw it, you know, you're looking at the AP or the PA and you take a line and you connect kind of the radial styloid along the distal part of the radius as well. And you compare that with a line horizontal, that should be around 23 degrees. And the radial height that should be around 11 millimeters. I think what people say kind of to see like the 11 times two to remember is an easier way, like, you know, 11 degrees, 22 degrees of radial inclination and 11 millimeters of radial height give or take. Now, what are some characteristics of unstable distal radius fractures? Like we see this, like, you know, the x-rays show up and we see that and we're like, you know, even if we reduce it, like this is probably going to be pretty unstable.
1: Yeah. So you're basically going off of intuition, which is what Dr. LaFontaine also did. But basically LaFontaine came up with a criteria or a set of characteristics for a distal radius fracture to kind of predict will this maintain reduction or not? And so these LaFontaine criteria are age greater than 60 may have a a over 50% risk of reduction loss. And it's one of those things where it's kind of osteoporotic bone, not as stout metaphyseal bone or cortical bone, you're going to lose the reduction if you have involvement of the distal ulna as well. And this is not necessarily a ulna styloid distal ulna, but if it's a in the distal ulna metaphysis, if that is also fractured, you'll lose that ulnar-based buttress to help maintain length. If there's any intraarticular involvement, obviously that's worrisome for loss of reduction, fracture comminution of the metaphysis, and then dorsal angulation greater than 20 degrees. And so these are the things that you're going to kind of look for and see like, ooh, this is something that would hold up with a good blint and mold. Versus, hey, we should keep a close eye on this distal radius because it does involve comminution, intraarticular involvement, and a distal ulna fracture. Well, that one's probably going to lose its reduction and and may benefit more from operative stabilization. But those are the kind of LaFontaine criteria. And so some of the distal radius fractures that can be treated non operatively, and what's the typical protocol for that?
0: Yeah. So, you know, these can be fractured with good alignment after reduction and you know typically like the non-displaced fracture so you reduce it you put it in a sugar tong splint if that's what you do at your institution or cast it if that's what you do at your institution but you want some way to reduce it and immobilize it and and typically how this is is these fractures you have them kind of come back every week let's say for example the first three weeks get x-rays to make sure your reduction has stayed and you may transition them to a short arm cast at some point i know there's some advocates of long arm casting still but i think short arm casting is what a majority of people do you know once this been enough time say for example four to six weeks or so some people will transition them to a removable wrist splint if they see healing on x-rays then clinical exam finds which they don't have much tenderness things of that sort. But basically you want to just keep a close eye on these fractures, make sure they don't re-reduce, not re-reduce, make sure they don't lose your reduction. So again, you want to just keep a close eye on these. And out of that LaFontaine criteria, what is the major or one of the
1: main factors that may determine that you may lose your reduction? It's going to be the age of the patient. And to me that it makes just more intuitive sense that if they have more osteoporotic bone, weaker bone, regardless of how good you get that reduction, there's always that void of bone that happens because of the fracture and it's going to lose its its reduction whereas a 20 year old fractures their distal radius they still have very robust bone and so they'll be they'll maintain that reduction a little bit better and this is i have never seen this but my attendings talk about it or when i was a resident <laughs> Yeah, Why I should say my colleagues now talk about this. And let's say you have a patient who they fractured their distal radius about, I don't know, four or five weeks ago. And they say that they, they just have weakness in their thumb. They're not able to open their hand and grip things. What's the complication that is seen with the non-operative treatment of distal radius fractures?
0: Yeah, it's going to be late. EPL rupture. So again, just like you said, around four to six weeks after injury, they are just unable to extend their thumb. And I think they were saying that this may be due to maybe something vascular happens, you know, when you have these injuries, but late EPL rupture. So you want to check everybody that comes to your clinic after, you know, you're treating a non-optic to make sure they can extend their thumb IP joint. And if they cannot, and they have this EPL rupture, you can treat this with an EIP, EPL transfer. Now, so we talked about like, you know, kind of non-op these fractures and some of the complications associated. What are the operative indications for distal radius fractures?
1: Yeah. Intraarticular displacement greater than two millimeters, just like any other joint in orthopedics. Dorsal angulation greater than 10 degrees compared to their contralateral side. So this does not necessarily mean dorsal angulation greater than 10 overall, because they may have had a more neutral volar tilt in the first place and you're not really correcting much if you compare it to their contralateral distal radius. So yeah, if it's greater than 10 to 15 degrees from their contralateral side, they'll notice their change in wrist range of motion. So that would be a good one to fix. If their radial shortening is greater than three millimeters after reduction, you want to do a really good job of maintaining that radial length because if that radius shortens, then you start to get ulnar abutment, the lunate, and they have pain anytime they ulnarly deviate their hand, and then it just causes problems down the road with lunate AVN and lunate facet arthritis, and then you have to do an ulnar shortening osteotomy and just bigger problems from that. And then if they have a displaced fracture, you reduce them you see them back in a week or two in clinic and they're back to where they were before. That indicative of a very unstable distal radius fracture that would benefit from operative stabilization. And then unstable volar shear fractures are ones that are kind of guaranteed to lose their reduction regardless. And so any sort of shear type injury should be stabilized with a volar plate. Let's say that you're on call, 85 year old lady, was walking around with a cane in her home and she trips over the edge of a rug and she comes in with a distal radius fracture. What can you talk about with that patient and her family in regards to operative versus non-operative treatment? Yeah.
0: So, you know, I think overall they have similar outcomes, you know, when you're talking about treating this non-operatively versus operatively. But, you know, there are also, there are always risks that come with operative treatment, like the typical operative risks of infection, wound problems, et cetera. But there is a study done in the JBGS in 2018, 11. Looking at this, it called a prospective randomized trial comparing non-operative treatment with fuller locked plate fixation for displaced and unstable disarrated fractures in patients 60 years of age and older. And pretty much what they found is that patients that have operative treatment do have improved Grip strength and improved X-rays. So again, elderly patients with these distal radius fractures who are treated operatively have improved grip strength and X-rays, but overall they have you know kind of similar outcomes. Now there are a lot of different fixation methods for when we're talking about fixing distal radius fractures. So that paper was just talking about volar locked plating, but what are some other you know some other operative options for distal radius fractures?
1: Yeah, and these are. These are more for you guys to just bring up with your attendings in terms of like operative planning and bring up some different ideas, because not every distal radius gets a molar locked plate. A large majority of them do, but they have... Dorsal plating. So if you have like a dorsal Barton, you're not really going to use a volar plate to hold that dorsal shear injury because that's not biomechanically sound. So you may go dorsal for those. Obviously, we talked about locked volar plating. And then a lot of these companies out here, like Skeletal Dynamics, I think Stryker has some, but they are kind of fragment-specific plating. So if it's a comminuted distal radius fracture, that 80% of the fracture pieces can be held with a volar lock plate, but you may need like a, a radial styloid plate to to capture the radial styloid portion of the fracture, then you have fragment-specific plating. I just did a dorsal spanning plate for one of my patients. She was an elderly patient that unfortunately she just continued her distal radius fracture from when I first saw her in September over the next three months, just progressively got shorter and shorter and more impacted. And then her ulna became too prominent. So We pulled her out to length, put some bone graft in and did a dorsal spanning plate. And I'm going to keep her in that for, I don't know, four to six months and then take it out. And once she's healed and then obviously an X-Fix, and then if you want to get really fancy with it, they have very strange devices, uh, (laughs) like, and I use it, I I don't use it for fractures, but I use it for my tumor related stuff. But there's, you can do a luminos, which is a, uh, UV light photovoltaic polymer cure system that uses an intramedullary kind of cement curing thing to hold these distal radius fractures or an intramedullary nail. So, Or you can also do K-wires for the, even in non-pediatric patients, I've seen K-wires for trauma patients in the ICU that just need something to hold their distal radius in place while they kind of heal provisionally and then can go and transition them to something else. So plenty of options and you should all be aware of them for planning and discussion purposes with patients and with your uh, attending. So let's say uh, uh, you have your patient and they have a distal radius fracture, but they're also like, man, my thumb and index finger are starting to get really, really numb and tingly and just broke my hand like like a day ago or my wrist a day ago. What sort of things are you worried about?
0: Yeah. So you're worried about, you know, acute carpal tunnel syndrome happening associated with these distal radius fractures, which can be seen in about five to 8% of distal radius fractures. And I wonder if we're just not, you know, like documenting it or just not looking for it. I think it sees us more than we see them. And, you know, we just think like, ah, you know, it'll it'll get better, just elevate it. But if you elevate it and don't get better, you know, that's kind of indication to go ahead and You may need to acutely take these patients back for open carpal tunnel release, and you may may fix their distal radius at the same time. I think I've done this maybe twice or so in residency. Like, we've had a a distal radius with an acute carpal tunnel syndrome, so we just went ahead and opened the carpal tunnel and fixed the distal radius. So, what are some indications, I guess, and complications? You just talked about dorsal plating not too long ago, but what is your indication to to dorsal plate? and what are some complications seen with it for these distal radius fractures?
1: Yeah, the main indication would be those dorsal shear fractures, just because you can't capture them reliably from the volar aspect so any dorsal bartons and then unfortunately the tendons pass so close to the dorsal aspect of the radius and there's such minimal soft tissue between those two structures especially because you're going to have to put the plate essentially within these dorsal compartments that can get tendonitis and eventual tendon rupture. So these types of plates may be the ones where you take them out just to prevent tendon rupture down the road once they've fully healed. So you can also get tendonitis and tendon rupture with volar plating as well. But yeah, the the dorsal ones are the are the most kind of bothersome for the patients and then what are some of the advantages and disadvantages or complications seen with volar plating?
0: Yeah you know so advantages you have you can you know with volar lock plating you can do some early range of motion you have good soft tissue coverage over the plate itself you know you have your pronator quadratus if you, if you fix those uh, that's a whole other discussion and a lot of those extensor I mean a lot of those flexor tendons so you have a lot of soft tissue coverage but uh, there are some complications seen with volar plating so if your plate is too distal either FP Tendon can actually rupture because it can rub up against the side of the plate. And then you can also have intraarticular hardware. So, like, how they'll do this is. Typically then they may show you like a lateral x-ray of the plate and you look at the where the plate is in relation to the distal radius and you'll see that the plate is just too distal. It's like not necessarily hanging over the distal radius, but you'll you'll know You'll be like, oh, this is this is this is too distal. So they'll test that. They'll say, Hey, your patient underwent plating and a couple weeks later they're having a little bit of issues bending their thumb. Why did this happen? And they'll show you an X-ray and you'll be like, okay, there it is. It was due to the placement of the plate. And then also if your screws are too long, you can have EPL, extension tendon rupture. You know, So if you just think about it, screws are too long, your tendons are rubbing up against the screws. Every time you flex and extend your, your thumb, you can have EPL tendon rupture. We hope that you all enjoyed listening about some distal radius fractures, really learning about some distal radius fractures. We hope that this is helpful. And we hope that you all continue to stay tuned and check out some more of our upcoming episodes. And if you have not already, hit the subscribe button and we will see everybody next episode. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants and goals and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation is, story locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.